what's up and welcome back to the crude oil podcast it's episode number 42 sean we got a series split it's a best of five how you doing i'm dying of stress <laughs> it's been like half a week man like does every it's... playoff game have to be a fucking nail biter for us oh especially if the eight o'clock starts like it does not do anybody any good uh to definitely have to sit through that and then have the heart rate pumping that high at 10 o'clock at night well, it's funny because uh, last night um, I was super excited, so I was having a hard time falling asleep. And then on Monday, I was super angry, so I was having a hard time falling asleep. <laughs> it's it's uh, reminiscent of, I remember they asked McDavid about that, like, how does he sleep during the playoffs? And uh, he's like, honestly, the losses are the ones that I find easiest to go to bed after. And it's like, huh. It's the complete opposite for me, like you on Monday night. Like, I had to watch the end of that Dallas-Minnesota game in order to to fall asleep because I was so upset. But um, last night was was pretty easy for me. But um, we're recording here. It is today's Thursday in between game two and game three. Uh, of course, we mentioned the, the split series uh, right now. L.A. taking game one in overtime four to three. Edmonton evening up with uh, a 4-2 win last night. Uh, initial thoughts. We can dive in game by game, kind of give our, our thoughts if you... Uh, think that's um the best way to start sean yeah probably i think with the lack of news outside like oilers related news outside of the games we might as well dive into each game because i think there's a lot to talk about in each game yeah uh before we dive into things just wanted to remind everybody you can go follow us on youtube and twitter at crude oil podcast uh the the conversations uh, especially online, seem to be ramping up with the playoffs. So uh, we got some stuff we'll touch on in a little bit regarding uh, uh, some stuff we were talking about during the game in game two. But uh, let's dive in game one, Sean. How do you explain this game in a nutshell? Uh, well, I would say we didn't show up for like 10 minutes and it fucked us. That's pretty mm-hmm. much the gist of it. Um, I don't think there's really too much to get into outside of that because like realistically... First period was fantastic. I thought the team played great. Um, it was yeah. one of the most complete periods I think we've played before we got into game two, that is. But we'll get into that afterwards. And honestly, I was flying so high after that first period. <laughs> I don't know yeah. about you. Yeah, I'm kind of with you. Like, I saw a lot of comparisons in, in uh, game one and game two for the first period. Uh, complete domination. And I think the thing that stood out the most to me was kind of the physicality side of things, the physical side of things. The physicality was was great. Like, I felt like we're manhandling LA uh, for the most part. And I don't know. It's I, I was talking to some friends about this last night. It's uh, Edmonton can control a game for 58 minutes, but when they take two minutes off, they fucking like don't even show up to the rink. Well, here's... The problem is when they make mistakes, they're generally awful mistakes. Right. right. And like, unless you get a big save from the goalie to bail out whoever decided to make said mistake, then it ends up in the back of our net. And Mm -hmm. we can hope that we keep those two a minimum and keep it down to like one, maybe two big mistakes a game because there's a good chance, like I said, it's going to go in the back of the net and we can outscore two bad goals in a game. Yeah. Um, 
but once it starts to get up to three and even four, then we're starting to push it. Like I know we are averaging about four goals per game, but in the playoffs, you can't really expect that, especially against the LA Kings with how defensive they are. And the fact that they play the trap, it's almost impossible to get probably upwards of four goals in a game. Well, yeah, kudos to, uh, the, the LA Kings themselves, but I think the one guy that has, he's kind of shown in back-to-back games, but, uh, Corpus Allo doing a really good job of not letting the team bleed out. Um, kind of the penalty situation I found got them into some trouble uh, at the start of the, the game in game one. So it was, uh, it, I think you have to owe it a lot to them. But yeah, the, the, the trap style game really stops things from falling completely apart. Well, yeah, it's... Uh... It's been something that we keep being able to get at what a two goal lead. And then all of a sudden we just fall apart and can't seem to score that third one. And then once we give up that first goal, then the team starts to seem shaky for lack of a better word. Like we suddenly are like, Oh shit. Like I think they can come back in this game kind of mentality. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, I don't know about you. Like the third period, as soon as that happened, uh, the first goal from uh, Kempe, uh, which I kind of want to touch on, but as soon as it happened, you could tell like the tide was starting to shift and the, the, the foot on the gas pedal was coming off a little bit. Um, kind of a couple things that I had listed that I wanted to talk about, but I'll, I'll bring up the first one. Um, the, there's a lot of complaints about the refing and the, the power play like opportunities. I feel like this is something that we, we were really frustrated about last year. And how LA, you know, they they were given, and I'm using that in air quotes, more opportunities than they have been to Oilers. But I'm kind of getting the the power plays are what they are. I think I, I definitely saw a lot of chippiness from Edmonton and a lot of stupid penalties. Like I don't see any of the penalties that Edmonton took that I can really remember in Game One that were kind of chintzy that shouldn't have been called, but. Uh, I don't know. What's your take on the refing, especially in that game? Like the, the power play opportunities went up being six to three. Well, in that particular game, I can say in the heat of the moment, I was very angry mm-hmm. and I don't think anything's going to change that. Like after the fact I've calmed down, I've watched the replays. I've figured out that it's kind of like, I'm like, it is what it is. And specifically yeah. like say the day tripping, for example, in the moment I was heated. I was like, that's fucking bullshit. I thought there was a ticky-tack call. It seemed bullshit that they would call that in overtime. But then you watch it a few times. You're like, okay, like you can't be swinging your stick wildly like that. Like, do I think LA should have got a penalty, for example, when uh, I think it was Lazat, who's the one who got tripped, um, came in and essentially clipped DeHarnay to get him spinning and getting that falling momentum in the first place? Like... Mm-hmm probably especially if they were going to call one on day for tripping him immediately afterwards but yeah like you said i think everything's been pretty quote-unquote blatant like you have tripping by kane you have slashing by hyman you have high sticking by kane you have high sticking by bouchard like these are all stick infractions that the refs are always going to call yeah. so it's not like they're like weird holding penalties or weird um like interference penalties. I think Bouchard, he took a interference penalty in the first period, which probably is the closest thing to a like ticky tack kind of call that there's been in the series against Edmonton. Yeah. Because even like 
it's probably jumping ahead, but even in game two, they're all like blatant penalties, like the dry saddle slashing. You have Nuge hooking. You have dry saddle tripping. You have Evander Kane's ridiculous delay of game penalty. Like, like mm-hmm. the refs have to call that stuff. You can't not call that shit. And yeah. they've let shit go too. I think it was the first period in the game one where um, Nurse like slashed and cross checked. I think it was Dowdy, like nowhere near the puck, just standing on the blue line. And he just did it. And yeah. I immediately yelled out. I was like, what the fuck are you doing, Nurse? And it was so lucky that the refs didn't catch it. But they could have easily called that penalty, but they didn't. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm kind of with you. Like, it's the inconsistencies in certain things. And, uh, uh, we'll get to an incident in game two where it stood out as like, well, how how are you calling this, but not this? And uh, the timeliness is kind of weird on some of them. But I mean, I don't know. I, I've, I'm at the point now, like there's no point arguing about refing because you're never going to change anything. Um, but it is what it is. And at the end of the day, you have to you have to kill off the the penalties. The ones that just fucking make me go bananas, though, are the ones that you take in the offensive end. Like, I think it was Hyman's penalty. I was like, what are you, what are you doing? Like, those are the ones that get my blood boiling just from a, like, not from an anger at the ref standpoint, but just like more of an anger at the, the Oilers standpoint, like frustration, I guess. But I don't know. Well, you can I sit gr- here. I agree yeah. with that. And the time timeliness of the penalties, I think it was more so unfortunate for Edmonton that, Bouchard took that high sticking penalty like that was extremely undisciplined where he essentially cross checked yeah. a guy in the face like you see it and you're like okay I'm not mad because it's a bad penalty I'm mad about the fact that Bouchard did that and the fact that there's two minutes left in the game like yeah. that couldn't have been worse timing and then similar to Deharnay's tripping in overtime is like the timing of that is terrible because you're doing it in overtime and it's just a penalty you don't need to take. And I think that's probably what got myself and likely a lot of other people heated is they were kind of taking it out on the refs, but the anger should have more been directed toward these young players, like making mistakes in the heat of the moment and not realizing like what they were doing before it was too late. Yeah. And and you bring up Bouchard, which, which sucks because I thought he was probably the second best player on the ice for the Edmonton Oilers that night. Um, if like pushing, uh, I think Dreisaitl was by far and away the best player on the ice uh, for both teams. Um, but I think Evan Bouchard had a really strong game, but it was just offset by those, those dumb mistakes. So I don't know. Uh, Leon continues to continues just to carry this team so far in the playoffs. And uh, the one thing that I was just going to mention before, uh, I wrap up my comments here is Adrian Kempe is scary, man. He is scary. Good. I'm glad you brought him up because after we finished the last podcast, I was thinking to myself and I said like, oh yeah, the Kings have a lot of these like second and third line, like wiggers who are all pretty mm-hmm. good. And I mentioned Kempe in that. And I really shouldn't have because he's <laughs> what scored 40 goals this year. He's yeah. like a point per game player, essentially. Like I should have put more respect on his name and I immediately paid for not doing that in game one. And I'm hoping that the team can figure out a way to shut him down because he's been fantastic for them already. Um, and then obviously Kopitar had four points in game one, which is uh, yeah. why I was sitting here and you were like, Drysaddle was the best one on the ice in game one. I was like, he had four points. It's hard to put that against Kopitar. He was definitely the best on the Oilers, but like four points in 
game one is pretty pretty significant let's just say but it was yeah, a quiet four points that's about all i could say with that it didn't seem like because maybe it's because he wasn't the one scoring the goals but i wasn't like holy shit kopitar's playing out of his mind that you actually beat me to my counterpoint i was like it was four points but it was a very quiet four points but i mean that's that's some of those games like obviously you, you make an impact without being the the star of the show so um yeah, the only other thing that I, I saw that's really frustrating to see is the amount of times you saw shit like getting thrown on the ice. Um, nobody likes that. Like, I get you. The thing that sucks about seeing that stuff getting thrown on the ice is all it takes is like one idiot and a crowd of 18,000 people to throw their beer on the ice. On You know, I was trying to hit the ref or Mrs. Kopitar, I think it was, by like a couple feet, like... And it ju- it's just fuel for the internet to make Edmonton look like a bunch of classless fans. And I know we're not. It just sucks to see. Man, it was, uh, it sucked for sure. I agree. Like looking online, people were just bashing Oilers fans for that kind of attitude and doing that. And it was quite frankly embarrassing. And mm. there's everybody was shit talking us. Like you had like Vancouver fans shit talking us, being like, oh, you don't react like that after a loss. I was like, guys, come on. Come on. Yeah. If all people should understand it's Vancouver, but their Jesus. counterpoint was it was game seven of the Stanley cup final, not game one of the first mm-hmm. round. Yeah. I mean, two disallowed goals, uh, the power play situation being what it was a disallowed goal in overtime. I get the frustration, but, uh, it is what it is. So, uh, that's, that's all I had for game one. I don't know about you. If I missed anything. Um, not particularly, like, I think we could probably get maybe into player specific stuff after we talk about game two as well. So I'll just hold on to that, but we can move on to game two for sure. Um, again, basically I felt carbon copy of the first period in game one, the Edmonton Oilers coming out. I thought that was maybe the most dominant period I've seen all season. Um, and, uh, they held the Kings to no shots for like 18 minutes plus, Oh, it was absurd. I kept looking at the shot clock and it was never changing. And I would I'm watch right? LA walk into the zone. They take a shot it get blocked. It would go wide. Like they just couldn't get anything going. <laughs> it. So this is, this is why I had a bit of a tough time. I'm sitting there and I'm watching the, uh, the first period intermission. Um, sorry, it wasn't the first, I think it was the second They're They're talking about, uh, it was Kelly Rudy on the panel and he's talking about how Edmonton's just been completely like, horrible since the start of the third in game one and i'm like i don't know if you you pay much attention like i think kevin bx is probably the best person on that entire panel um but just some of the takes that they have is just laughable because i don't think you can look at that first period at any facet of the game and call it a bad period for the edmonton oilers no absolutely not that's like almost blasphemy to say something like that like that's fucking ridiculous um but to be fair that was in the second intermission so there's probably a little bit of recency bias in that because edmonton didn't exactly close out that period particularly well being up to nothing with uh like about five minutes left and then going into the end of the period two two um it seems like edmonton has struggled to close out periods probably be the best way to put it um yeah just because yeah like they keep finding ways to get like scored on late in the period which has happened two two games in a row now so i'm really hoping they can figure that out because it feels like they start coasting in the last minute if they've had a good period and then it kind of 
falls apart and makes the rest of the period look bad in comparison. Well, yeah, like, I mean, the Kings get the last two goals and and basically what's the last five or get their two goals within the last five minutes of the second period. Like that doesn't indicate that you had a terrible period. But I mean, to their credit, they came out and they needed to win it and they did it. Um, So it's something I'll definitely like want to pay attention to. But again, like another instant incident. I can't use my fucking words today. Corpusalo instance where Jonas Corpusalo was like standing on his head. Um, it, he really, really held it together, at least like for those first allowing the Kings really to get back in the game, because I thought this was going to be a, a runaway at at uh, at one point. Well, honestly, Corpusalo is doing exactly what he needs to do to help keep L.A. in the series. Um, he hasn't stolen a game per se. But he's definitely like put in the enough effort to keep the team competitive and within yeah. like a goal pretty much of, at all times. Like I know we've had a couple two goal leads, but um, like L.A. was always the one who scored the third goal so far. So it's been very close all the time. And it's almost I would say it's almost 100 percent just on Corpus Allo managing to figure it out after giving up a couple and then keeping them in the game. And yeah. It would be like in game uh, game one, it would have been nice to see Skinner be able to do that to kind of uh, find a way to start making some important saves to make sure that LA couldn't get that third goal, specifically like that last minute. And then, to be fair, in game two, I think he really did that. He made some important saves late in the third to keep that lead. And then it all ended up working out where we finally hit that empty net. Yeah. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, I thought Kane was going to bobble it the way it's like trying to chase after it. I was like, oh, no. But, he seemed uh, like he was panicking a little bit in the moment. Yeah. And like, uh, I'm happy he skated it all the way into the net because <laughs> based off of how he was bobbling it, I felt like there's a good chance he could miss the net. And I had shades of Patrick Stefan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Uh, it was nice to see the Oilers get the lead quickly back uh, at the start of the third and then just shut things down. Um I thought it was a fairly strong finish to the game. Uh, so it'll be, be interesting to see how they, uh, they close things out. Um, I mean the rest of the series. So, uh, I think it's time to jump into some of the player specific stuff. Uh, because I mean, we had some impacts, obviously the, the biggest one from game one being the fact that, uh, Matthias Janmark, who is an absolute horse on that fucking PK. I don't know. Was it two shots, three shots he blocked in a row? Um, I think it was two shots, but Yamamoto blocked the first one, which was fantastic right. as well. Yeah. But uh, he, he's listed out a uh, rumor being, of course, they're they're calling it day to day, but there's rumors floating around. It's the end of the uh, uh, out for the series. So I, I think it's a big hit to this team. I think it's a big hit specifically to the power or sorry, not the power play, the penalty kill. The power but, kill. Yes, the power kill. That's uh, that's exactly what I meant to say. Um, <laughs> to be fair, though, they were fantastic in uh, game two. They killed off four penalties without giving up a goal, um, all without him. Mm-hmm. So, like, we had one power play to their four, and we won the special teams. Like, th- like you'd think LA would be able to get at least one on those four. So, kudos to them for being able to do that. Um, some guys are out there getting some more minutes that they probably wouldn't have if Yan Mark was in the lineup. So it's really nice to see everybody contributing. Speaking of the penalty kill, I've been thinking about this actually, mm. that I believe it was the end of last year. 
during our some of our off-season podcasts, I had talked about how your bottom six essentially needs to be involved in some sort of special teams or else you kind of fall off the carousel when it comes to rolling lines. Yeah. And I think outside of Costin, every single player in that bottom six kills penalties. Like yeah. you got McLeod, you got Yanmark, you got uh, Ryan, you've got Fogel, like all these guys killed penalties or at least can kill penalties if they need to. No kidding. Yeah, that's a great point. Like it's, I know I complained about it earlier in the season about having this gigantic cast of people that can do it, but uh, yeah, you're right. Like everybody in the bottom six has a role in that penalty kill. Well, it's really nice to see, and I'm curious if uh, Costin's capable of doing it, but it's he's not really needed to do it, to be fair, because, yeah, everybody does it. Even if even Evander fucking Kane's out there, McDavid's out there, like, McDavid's one of our top penalty killers now. Yeah. And yeah. you'd think that it would be smarter to bench him, but he gets offensive opportunities. I think we had, like, two shorthanded two-on-ones in this game. One with yeah. McDavid where he took the shot and another one with Kane in the first period where he took a shot. Mm-hmm. So like yeah. you, you can't argue with the results and it's just good to see that if a guy goes down in Yanmark, that we have other guys who are able to step up and fill that role. It's funny because you're not even replacing a forward with him either. You're just bringing on another defenseman to run 11 and seven. So it's yeah, it's, it's crazy. I think the um, 11 and 7 is important too with this team because I will be, be perfectly honest. I love DeHarnay. I think he's great, but he has struggled these two games. Yeah. He's taken that questionable penalty. I've seen him fall over and get caught flat-footed on like three or four separate occasions now. Um one of which was um I think it was the Deno goal. He like got caught up to by the guy behind him on the breakout pass, which caused him to fluff it and turn it over. Then he fell over and all of a sudden it was like a three on one and he couldn't catch back up up on the play. Yeah. I, I was, I was going to wonder, uh, or I was starting to wonder like at the, the first game, like it felt like there's a lot of people falling. Like, I don't know if the ice wasn't like up to par, but, um, yeah, I know day was one that stood out to me, just had a couple uh, picks and and was eating it but uh back to your point about him yeah i think our rookies are showing their their stripes right now a little bit um well i, I think you... austin said it too in the first mm-hmm. game he said that his hands were shaking and he couldn't yeah. like get rid of that feeling but in game two he really settled in and suddenly he was feeling more comfortable and then it resulted in him scoring a goal and having the confidence to take the shot so yeah this, I, I could go on for days about Clem Costin, but like seeing his uh, uh, interview, like on the ice, being like, ah, my English no good. Like um, this, this guy is excited and he's nervous because he loves to be here. And so to see someone like get that excited, you can't help but feel like fantastic for the guy. Oh, it was really cool. I watched the uh, post game presser as well with Drysaddle mm. and Costin. And Costa was hilarious. They asked him about the fans because they were all outside cheering. And he's just like, it's insane. It's just insane. (laughs) And uh, they asked him, like, what was going through your head when you took the shot? He's like, honestly, I was just looking for Leon because I I trust trust him more more than than I trust myself. (laughs) (laughs) I heard that, too. That was pretty funny. Um, Yeah, no, it was was great to see. But uh, I definitely think, like, you're seeing, I get the nerves. Like, I totally get it. So I'm not trying to put too much fault on it. Uh, the one thing that I wanted to build off at this point is 
DRNA, like that's why I think the 11 and seven is going to be good. You kind of insulate him a little bit better. Um, Stuart Skinner. I, I wanted to bring that up because uh, he said some great things after the, the first game that I thought personally, where he was talking about how I'm glad to get the first game over with. Uh, but I'm also very grateful that I got my first loss out of the way. And I thought that kind of spoke levels to his his confidence and what he needs to feel out of this experience. Well, it also speaks to his maturity. Like it seems mm-hmm. as though he's he's aware of the emotional toll that the playoffs can take on you. And like as a goalie, I'm sure it's to a degree like you obviously don't want to lose, but it's also nice to get that um, adversity out of the way early. So like say for example I'm not going to I'm not blaming the first game on him by any means but say right. for example for himself he's like that game was on me that was my fault I know how this feels I don't want to feel this anymore so it's almost extra motivation for him to play better not that he probably needs it but wherever you can get any drop of energy or motivation during the playoffs you look for that and you hold on to it mm, yeah so I'll I'll pass it to you first because I saw a lot of different opinions online last night. Uh, what's your thoughts of, of his performance in game two, specifically those two goals that he gave up? Well, I think there's a lot of talk about his uh, inability to hold the post. Some people were very <laughs> upset about that. And it's something everybody noticed as well, because both of the goals, the other one went over his pad, to be fair, but the Gabe Velarde goal where he kind of snuck it under his skate, a lot of people were questioning whether or not he even knows how to protect the post properly. Because generally speaking, a goalie tries to protect the post by pressing his pad up against the post, not his skate. But Skinner had pressed his skate right up against the post, making it so there was that small gap under his blade where the puck can go through. The reason being is that it's easier for a goalie to kick off the post with his skate than it is with the bottom of the pad like you can get more momentum and speed across so whether or not that was the right approach in the moment to do it like i don't think he expected um velarde to be able to sneak that under his pad like that um and then the other one was just kind of to know was left out front it was a miscommunication by the two defensemen who were on i think it was bouchard and ekholm at the time and bouchard kind of lost his man and couldn't catch back up to him in time and like i don't expect skinner to be able to save the shot when there's uh i think three different shots within two or like a millisecond of each other just one two three and the third one goes in like what are you gonna do mm-hmm. yeah i i, I kind of had the same takeaways like i'll give him the the benefit of the doubt with the the first goal where uh uh, he's left all alone in front, but yeah, you you gotta be tight to your post on that one for the second. I thought he rebounded well. I I have no concerns. I saw some people putting up polls like, "Who do we start for Game 3? I'm like, "You've got to be fucking kidding me right now." Um, so I don't know. He's a, he's also playing in a second game, like second playoff game. Let him settle in a little bit. I, I it'll be interesting to see how he takes this game in LA, uh, first game on the road, but. Well, it'll be interesting, too, because Edmonton is better on the road. So I'm curious to see if that translates to the playoffs as well. Yeah. Okay. I want to open up Pandora's box here. Um, I asked it online uh, last night. I'll ask you it, but I want to read through some of the responses before we we get into things. Because uh, uh, like we mentioned, if you guys want to respond to things, we're going to bring them up on the pod. So um After watching this first two games, I am not 100% 
certain that Connor McDavid is at the top of his game. And so that's just basically what I, I threw out to Twitter. Uh, a lot of people saying like uh, it's a product of uh, uh, LA's defense. Uh, a lot of people saying like it's uh, um, just the way that they're playing him. He's not having time and he's just being conservative. Uh, I was kind of more alluding to the mental side of things. Uh, but I don't know, Sean, I'll open it up. What's your thoughts? Well, I have heard some people thinking like, oh, maybe he has the flu. Like it's going around Boston. Maybe it's going around <laughs> in our room too or something. But quite honestly, like people are ragging on him, but I think their expectations are just insanely high, especially considering the quality of shutdown centers that LA has. Like Philip, yeah. Philip Deneau is no fucking joke. He can shut people down hard. Like maybe last year was the exception against LA, but on the plus side, Edmonton at least has two like superstars. So we can rely on dry to have a little bit more space because the nose glued to McDavid and like, to be fair, McDavid has had his fair share of chances and he's yeah. had some good opportunities in this game. He's been like, or in the game, he's been skating really well. Um, LA's just been playing really well, and the trap kind of is the anti-McDavid to a degree. Oh, totally. So, because yeah. he gets his speed in that neutral zone, but if he runs into those three players who are in the neutral zone, it just slows him right down. If he can manage to get around them, it's great. Like, you saw in, um, I think it was game one, where he it was on the power play. He flies into the zone and just gets through all three players suddenly to get a great chance on net. Yeah. Like, and draws a penalty in the process. So, I think... People need to temper their expectations slightly. Realize, like, I think McDavid is due to probably have a game where he has three or more points, if not more. So, like, I personally think that he's played pretty well. Um, and people need to, just because the points aren't on the board, need they need to calm down. I think his five-on-five -five statistics with Kane and, or not Kane, Nugent Hyman have been fantastic as well. And I think that speaks also to the whole team. Their five-on-five -five statistics have been fantastic overall. Like, they've been outplaying LA exponentially at five-on-five. -five. So. Uh, I'm going to disagree with you on the fact that he's playing well. Uh, I, I definitely think that there's some a lot of things that I agree with. Like, I think LA is one of the better defensive teams that... Uh, um, will match up here against in the playoffs. I don't think Connor McDavid had a great game in game one. Um, he, he finished dash two. He was on the ice for all uh, three of the Kings goals in regulation. Uh, he's, he's fighting the puck. I just saw like a couple instances, the, the Kempe goal that um, kind of gave them life. He, he had a clear opportunity to shoot the puck, but instead he forced a pass that turned over and wound up in the back of his net. Um, I just I don't know. I I wonder if he's if he's buying into the the fact that he knows he's being tightly checked and my brother brought up a, a good thing like maybe it's a it's a mental thing cuz he's carried this team basically from the struggles at the start of this uh uh the season when things were going very wishy-washy and not knowing what this team was made of. Like down the stretch I don't think Connor McDavid like uh, and in the stretch I mean the last 5 to 6 games of the regular season um, you didn't see the same point production. I'm not blaming him for that. Like, I think what we saw was like white hot Connor McDavid. And I, I, I don't think that's a realistic thing to expect every single year. Um, but, uh, or consistently throughout the entire year, 
but it was just is interesting to see some of the decisions he was making in game one. Uh, I don't think it's a physical thing because, like you mentioned, he's flying out there. There was a uh, a rush that he had. Uh, I think he was on the power play where he went like end to end and like deep through the entire Kings team and like almost put it in the net, which like I was almost like through the table off my, uh, our uh, living room floor. But um, it, uh, I, I just wonder because. I don't know if you caught this. There was a two on one with him and Yanmark, uh, Yanmark in the uh, the first game, and I, I'm totally understanding like a defenseman taking the guy uh, who who uh, the free man letting your goalie get the shot because it was a two on one. Yanmark has the puck up ice. I I wish I remember which defenseman it was, but it was almost as if Yanmark didn't exist and he was just riding Connor McDavid. Like the gap control was non-existent. And Yanmark just went in and was like, fuck it. Like, it's basically a breakaway because they're not going to stop me. I'm just wondering if, if it's playing into the mental game a little bit. But um, I don't think he had a bad game, too. I, I, I'm i with you. He's going he's gonna to break out one of these games. I think just the LA Kings are doing a hell of a job um, defending him. Yeah, well, ultimately, I agree with most of the stuff you're that, that you're saying. And it's funny you bring up that Yanmark. Um two on one because I was just thinking like that's the kind of play or the way that McDavid needs to play, which is to use his feet more to draw people to him, to open up more space for his teammates, which maybe to a degree that doesn't get seen as much. Like it obviously got saw on the two on one when three Kings are attracted to McDavid, like a magnet and Yanmark is free to do whatever the fuck he wants. But like, I think that would be really helpful. And maybe he's kind of, uh, he's adopted the mentality that he's a goal scorer now and he has to like score these rush goals because he obviously had a lot of success in the regular season. But, um, I think he needs to probably utilize his teammates a little bit more and use his speed to open up space for his teammates instead of, uh, opening up space for himself to get shots and breakaways and things like that. Yeah, yeah, it's a great point. And uh, Ryan also commented on it. Um, he said, which was a, a good thing to to point out the fact that there's zero room for him to move. And the other two players on his line really aren't doing much to create space for him or the rest of the line. So things will open up. I think we saw the start of the third period. Kane, second or third, Kane moved up to the top line, which moved RNH down with Dry Seidel and Yamamoto. So be interesting how. Uh, how much of the blender we get to see with the lines. Well, speaking of McDavid's line mates, we can get into some other players. Mm. I think Nuge and Hyman, for example, have been very, very underwhelming in the series. And even, even Kane to a degree, he's had a few chances, but he's been pretty underwhelming as well. He's played physical, but he's taken a few bad penalties and like these guys who are in the top six and to Yamamoto to a degree, like I've liked his energy that he brings and his forechecking and things like that. But none of those guys are really doing all of anything so far. And mm-hmm. like, there's a reason why dry Seidel is uh, seemingly doing so much. And when he is doing a lot, it's when he's playing in the bottom six, when he was playing with Cawson, <laughs> when he's playing with Ryan. Like, yeah. That's where he's getting his work done. It's not with our top six forward. So I would honestly point more fingers at uh, the wingers in the top six than uh, McDavid specifically, because I think, like you said, those guys aren't doing him any favors in terms of getting open when he's drawing everybody to him or them doing anything to drop people to them to give him more space. 
Yeah, yeah, totally. It's it's funny. We're sitting here like contemplating the top six and who like who's having issues and stuff. And this is a one one series, but we're we're getting carried by our bottom six players. Like oh, it's nuts. absolutely. And you gotta keep in mind we're we were sixteen seconds away from this being a two nothing series. Oh, totally. Yeah, absolutely. Um but yeah, no, that was just something I wanted to bring up. Um it curious to see how uh how he uh responds in game three, but I think it was just an adjusting period. I'm not concerned, by the way. I'm not saying Connor McDavid's playing bad. Um no. And I just, like it's gonna come. It's going to happen yeah, eventually. Exactly. Like yeah. you have a bad stretch of games, you might even have a bad series, but if we find a way to break through, then it will come eventually. And um but we've talked about the top six wingers, not really in detail, but is there anybody else that you wanted to discuss in detail? Uh just just what we're seeing from Leon Dreisaitl, man. <laughs> the clip, he is a playoff guy. Like he is the guy. I honestly like I have a hard time comprehending how he plays the way he plays in the playoffs. Like a lot of guys start to give in to some of that physicality, but like Drysaddle is one of those players who just invites physicality to him and just wants to see like, let's see you commit to try and hit me so I can just skate away from you. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's pretty fun. Um, yeah. I also got a chuckle too. Sorry. Just back on the, the conversation about the post game there. I don't know which reporter asked him. It was like, how are you feeling compared to last year? And he's like, it's not even really a question, like a lot better. Yeah. I, th- I remember that question too. And he's like, well, my leg doesn't hurt. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, I think that touches on everything I had for the first two games. Um, just looking forward to, to Friday night for game three. Yeah, pretty much. Um, and I guess we can, uh, since we were mentioning dry saddle, we can also talk about the fact that with his performance last night, he is now currently second all time in career points per game in the playoffs at 1.64, which is only behind Gretzky at 1.84. Wow. (laughs) That's wild. That is a wild stat. Honestly, looking at that statistic, like, I'm assuming it's more so because these guys have younger careers and maybe later in their careers, they take a more defensive role and don't exactly like aren't world beaters points wise, but like seeing dry in second McDavid in fifth and uh, Nathan McKinnon in sixth on that list is pretty crazy to see like three modern day guys on that list. It's nuts. Just nuts. All right, taking a look around uh, the rest of the league here, just quickly recapping the first couple games. Uh, we're recording here, obviously, pretty early before uh, any games have finished up for that second night. But um, Dallas and Mini are tied at one. Colorado uh, downing uh, part. I, I worded that completely wrong. Seattle <laughs> downing Colorado. <laughs> I was like, holy shit. Um, as a joke in my my family bracket, I picked them over Colorado. Um, we have uh, Winnipeg up over Vegas currently, Tampa over Toronto, one nothing, a split series with Boston and Florida. We have a one nothing Rangers over Devil series, and then Carolina already up two nothing on the Islanders. Uh, any surprises out of anything that's going on? Uh, obviously, there's some some standout performances and some uh, some questionable decisions being made. Well, I mean, so far, like 
the biggest surprise is probably the underdogs winning their game. So like you look at Seattle beating Colorado, like you mentioned, Winnipeg beating Vegas, as well as Florida winning game two against Boston in Boston. Like Mm. those are all very surprising, especially like the way that, for example, Florida beat Boston's putting six goals up on Allmark. Like I don't yeah. Has he even let in six goals in a game all year? (laughs) Like, that's crazy. And then, like, it's more uh, surprising in the sense, and it's kind of funny that it is surprising. Um, Speaking of the Dallas-Minnesota series you mentioned, there was a lot of people who were confused because Marc-Andre Fleury was the starting goalie in game two. That was so wild. Yeah, after Philip Gustafson (laughs) puts up a 51-save performance in game one to win Minnesota the game. And they're like, oh, yeah, we're going to start Flurry now. And they asked the coach about it. And he's like, oh, it's what we've done all season. It's what we're going to continue to do. But Ugh. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like you like a guy puts up that kind of performance. I think you like you should ride him until he has a bad game. Like, I don't understand yeah. why you do that. And it kind of goes back to the Edmonton series with L.A. where people were suddenly wanting Campbell to potentially start. And it's like. You you got to ride who's got you there, and yep. with Minnesota it's Gustafson, with Edmonton it's Skinner. Like you can't just sh- like shake your faith in that player after one like questionable goal or two questionable goals. Like it's just ridiculous. I think the thing that's like fucking crazy about it is the fact they won that fucking hockey game. Like, w- what more do you want from the guy? He played five periods of hockey, like. Yeah, it'd be one thing if that uh, if they lost the game and the last goal was a garbage goal that he let in or something like that. And they're like, okay, like we'll move on to Flurry, not the rookie goalie who's in net right now. Yeah, weird, very weird. Uh, let's move to two of the uh, controversial things that are going on. Uh, let's start with uh, Bunting because, I mean, are we shocked that this has happened? I mean, there's nothing that goes together better than Toronto and one of their players getting suspended in the first round. Yeah. <laughs> Kadri one year, Bunting the next. I mean, it was Kadri two years in a row. That's to be true. Fair. Yeah, I guess it wasn't just one year. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so Bunting's just the new Kadri now, so everybody take notes of that. But, but so with that incident, Bunting getting suspended three games, um, what would that translate to in the regular season? Cause that's a pretty hefty, like, like I don't know what the score is right now, but Michael Bunting could have played his last game as a Toronto Maple Leaf. I mean, currently at the end of the first, it's three, nothing Toronto. Ah, so ah. they're, they're doing okay. But if I remember correctly, I remember reading that this is very arbitrary that people essentially attribute uh, one playoff game to be worth three regular season games. So this is like the equivalent of a nine game suspension, which is pretty wild Uh, considering I don't believe Bunting has a history of suspensions, but he does have a history of the refs apparently hating him from what I read. Mm. But ultimately, like, I think three games was probably a little bit much, especially in the playoffs. Um, Maybe like I could have seen two. I could have seen one. And like, if you could be suspended for one and a half games, I'd be like, that's perfect, but you can't. So like one of those two, I think would have been appropriate, but three games seems a little ridiculous to me. Yeah. I'm kind of with you. I was shocked to see three, but, um, the, the Pavelski hit I saw in live time. Cause I think it was right between the second and third intermissions. 
um, or second and third periods uh, for the Oilers' first game. That was one of the craziest like hits. Uh, like, I thought he sent him to another planet. I don't think there's a player in the NHL who has like worse luck on getting hit than Pavelski does. <laughs> like, <It's... laughs> oh, Bieksa went into detail with it that essentially there was like a crisscross of three player sticks in his face that like impacted his face and or his temple with the one stick, which pretty much knocked him out. So he couldn't protect himself when he fell. So he took an even bigger impact on the ice. And like it's kind of like a throwback to when he the same or similar thing happened back in I think it was twenty like nineteen or twenty twenty where uh, Pavelski got knocked out essentially again and there was Saturday a minute major called yeah so yeah. it's just it's just terrible for him obviously I feel awful for Pavelski but um, I'm happy that it was actually like a clean hit and just unfortunate it's not like like a bunting style hit where it was like an elbow to the face that knocked him out. So, yeah. And speaking of which, like Matt Dumba's not getting suspended or didn't get suspended for that. So they, everybody considers it to be a relatively clean hit. It's just more of an unfortunate, unfortunate circumstance than anything else. Yeah. I, I feel bad because I'm laughing, but I've had the chance to explain to you. So I should probably explain to the listeners. I just uh, obviously hope that he's okay, but it's just the guy has, such bad luck with these incidents um but from from all all the reports it sounds like he he's doing okay like physically um but yeah like just can't catch a break it's the first thing i thought of was that that san jose vegas game like just wild um yeah it's it's something else but to be fair like there's this is actually now they keep reviewing these five minute majors for uh whether or not they should be five minute majors. So like they reviewed the bunting one and decided it was in fact a match penalty. So they kicked him out of the game. And then this Dumbo one, they reviewed it. They initially called five minutes and then reviewed it and then brought it back down to, I believe it was only two. I think they gave him mm -hmm. a roughing penalty. Yeah. Yeah. It's it it weird to see. Like it's an interesting rule for sure, but I, I'm glad they're getting it right. Um, again, you obviously just want the best for the player, but at least, when the game does go on, you do have the uh, the correct call being made. I think that takes care of everything going around with the, the series that uh, uh, we have on our notes. Um, just quickly going <laughs> through some of our other uh, news. It sounds like you remembered what you wanted to bring up about the Bo Horvat situation. Yes, I did. And like an idiot, I remembered it like 24 hours later sitting on the couch. And I was like, oh, fuck. Now I remember. <laughs> um, essentially like, I'm not going to dig into too many details, but uh, a lot of people are giving Bo Horvat shit for saying some questionable things about Vancouver. Um, but he was showing a lot of personality in that moment and like playing along with, uh, the interviewer and things like that. And people are calling for his head. Like is people complain that NHL players don't have enough personality, but mm -hmm. as soon as they show a lick of personality, people are calling for their heads. <laughs> It's just it's just ridiculous and so hypocritical. Yeah, there's no uh, there's no happy medium for anyone. Hey, no, not at all. <laughs> uh, and and speaking of um, uh, some other changes going around, we we missed uh, the the fact that Dallas Akins is looking for another job, uh, being let go by Anaheim, um, and more recently Calgary and Brad Tree Living uh, agreeing to mutually part ways was the. Uh, was the uh, the call, but 
I was actually shocked to see that it was it was him and not Daryl Sutter. I'm very curious about why this happened. And mm. the like there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that like if there's a mutual termination like this, do they get their contract still? Because I know like if a head coach gets fired, they still get paid the rest of their contract. Right. But if, if it's a mutual job, part ways, like I don't think he gets paid the rest. So it must have been something significant enough to, for him to be like, yeah, like I'll just leave. This isn't worth it. And there have been some rumors slash whispers that essentially management and Sutter are kind of tight. And tree living was like, I don't want to deal with Sutter anymore. And I want to get rid of him. And they're like, no, we're not letting you do that. (laughs) Well, good luck to Don Maloney. who got promoted to president of hockey operations. Uh, He'll take the the reins uh, as interim GM as well. Uh, and then quickly, Columbus letting go of Brad Larson with a year left, and Penguins just cleaning house. Could you? I kind of feel bad. They missed the playoff for the first time in 16 years, and they just clean out everyone. Brian Burke's gone. Ron Hextall's gone. Chris Pryor's gone. Like, that's the way to do it, I guess. Well, to be fair, I think Pittsburgh's made some pretty shit moves in the past, like, two years or so like them trading John Marino for uh, like a bag of pucks, which was a struggling Ty Smith was just awful. I can't believe they did that. Like Marino was their like number one defenseman in the first year after he signed there when he uh, refused to sign with Edmonton. And then suddenly they're like, okay, yeah, we're going to trade him because he had like a somewhat middling year. And then in New Jersey, he's been fantastic again. So I'm not surprised that they're like, you can't do shit like this. And I think it's happened on multiple occasions. Well, we'll have to see what, who's uh, who's ready for the next regime down there. Um, but yeah, we'll uh, we'll look forward to your game three on Friday. Game four goes Sunday night in L.A. Uh, just a reminder, 7 p.m. start. So an earlier start on Sunday night. Game three goes some more night. Edmonton, can we come back with a 3-1 series lead? Yeah.